Look, if you can remove fear and ego, then you're halfway there. Fear and ego, if, if that gets in the way, you're, you're in trouble. And that's another thing that I like to do, is surround myself with people that are as talented or if not more talented uh, than myself. Today on Dirty Linen, we are breaking out of Australia. We are going far across the world to Dubai to talk to renowned chef Greg Maloof. I am so excited to talk to Greg. He's one of Australia's most influential chefs. Uh, we're in 250 odd episodes of Dirty Linen. I feel like his name's been mentioned I don't know, a couple of dozen times with, he's got so many alumni that have filtered through great kitchens in Australia and around the world. He really changed what Middle Eastern cooking means internationally. Um, Greg, I'm so excited to talk to you. Welcome to Dirty Linen. Hello. Well, thank you. Uh, greetings from Dubai, from 40, 41 degrees at the moment, and it's 11 in the morning. Wow. Well, I'll take a few of those degrees, but not all of them, because it's very, it's very crisp in Melbourne at the moment. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So, Greg, tell us uh, tell us about life for you at the moment. What have you just been doing? Uh, what's life like in Dubai? Well, life's not too bad in Dubai. It's um, it's almost business as usual. You know, it, it's been a very um, trying. Uh, a uh, few years, <clears throat> I mean, globally. So uh, they've managed quite well here. Uh, I think 90% of the population are vaccinated. Uh, so it's not so much business as usual. But, you know, there's masks and social distancing, uh, but restaurants are operating pretty much uh, as they were. And... Um, you know, tourism's not where it was, but it, it's slowly climbing back. Um, also, I've been doing a bit of travel lately, which has been a, a real bonus for me. Uh, I've been, uh, <clears throat> I think in two, two years, I've been kind of uh, in um, not lockdown situation, but on this uh, in this part of the world or in Dubai and haven't been able to... Uh, jump on a plane but recently i've been to beirut and cairo and uh, casablanca so that was oh. quite quite interesting and exciting actually wow i mean tell us more about that i mean i'm especially interested to hear what things are like in beirut well yeah i mean beirut's it's it's very sad look it's not an easy it was a bit emotional going going there because i've got family there um, and the people are not quite, I mean, they're struggling. They're struggling a lot. Um, they were saying, uh, I've been told many times that it's, this is worse than the, the, uh, the civil war that hap happened. So much worse. Um, but look, there are people there that want to push on and they don't want to stick their head in the sand and so to speak. And, um, and try uh, um, and and push what they have and what they know as hard as they can because money's really trapped there as well. So all the um, um, the currencies, I don't know if you've heard, the currencies kind of are all over the place, and and um, 
So the money's kept there and pe the people with some money will start investing. And I was actually there to help launch a, uh, a pilot restaurant that may, uh, if it succeeds, which I think it will, um, go all around the, uh, the Arab, Arab world. Um, so I went, went there, I've written the menus and I'm, was training the staff, um, there. For, I was there for about, uh, two weeks or so. Incredible. Cause yeah, it's almost a year since, um, Beirut was rocked by that terrible explosion at the port. And I mean, a, a, a city in a country that was already politically quite unstable, um, corruption rife through every sector of the community and of course COVID um it's uh yeah I mean it's it's really heartening to hear that somebody's opening a restaurant there I mean just the, the resilience and the optimism is just really I mean it's quite moving yeah look I, I was um I couldn't actually I couldn't believe it I I, I just said to them listen bring it to Dubai and We'll do it here, and they said, "No, no, no, no. We want, we want it to work in Beirut first, and then we'll take it elsewhere." So, um, look, it, it, I'm hoping it'll work. I, I'm uh, optimistic that it will work because it's um, it's not so much unique, but um, there's certain elements of it that I think the Arab world haven't seen. So let's see what happens there, and and from there that was that that was um, I went to Cairo for a couple of days. Um, Tell me about that. Well, that was interesting. That was a call out of the blue, asking if I'd be interested in um, consulting in a or helping with a project in the pyramids. So, oh my goodness! Yeah, it was, it was. I couldn't resist, so I went there for a few days and. They showed me the project. It, it's an old jail um, that's been turned into a restaurant that uh, it's around, what, 500, yeah, probably 500 metres from uh, the pyramids themselves. So it overlooks the whole, uh, the three pyramids. It, it's quite, spe it's really spectacular. And the building's very uh, attractive. It's an old jail, which I don't know why they built a jail next to the uh, pyramids, but um, they're looking at an Arab concept, contemporary kind of Middle Eastern concept, and I guess I was the only one around that could uh, help them pull it off. So I'm uh, in discussion with them at the moment, uh, and I was in Casablanca um, before all this, uh, doing, a, again, a pilot restaurant um for a uh, for actually Buddha Bar Buddha Bar are doing a um, a uh, an outlet a uh, Middle Eastern outlet similar to Buddha Bar and they've asked me to write the menus and be the f face of the food so that was a pilot to see if it, if if it's um, going to uh, succeed and it's doing quite well so it looks like Abu Dhabi and Dubai are going to be the next. Uh, places they want and then there's Saudi Arabia so the whole this whole region is really um, it's it's opening up uh, with hospitality so that's I guess it's uh, one of the reasons why I'm still here because I really enjoy flying the flag for 
Lebanon and, and also Australia as well. So is this what you're mostly doing? You're based in Dubai, but consulting to restaurant projects around the region? Yeah, I, look, I, I got too frustrated with the quality of produce. So I um, got out of that and set up a small kind of uh, um, company that runs, uh, that does uh, consultancy and, and private events and or events and private dinners and etc. So uh, I find it, um, I quite enjoy this because I still get um, a, a uh, I still get time in the kitchen. I still get my buzz from that. And I still get a, a lot of uh, a buzz out of writing different menus and different styles. So um, there is a lot um, a lot going on and I'm enjoying it. Mm. So when you say you got frustrated with the produce, is that just in terms of sourcing ingredients? from? Well, yeah, it was just not cons- – it's just not so consistent around uh, – these parts, although it's getting better, but you know it, it's very difficult to grow fresh vegetables in a country that has uh, um, very little rainfall and extremes of heat. So, but they're doing quite. I, I'm considering all that. There's there's actually indoor fish farms here, and a lot of a uh, lot of uh, progress, but. You know, you can't beat gorgeous produce from Europe or England, and and that's super expensive. And no, it's so that that's they're the reasons why I got out of it because it was too inconsistent and too expensive to deal with uh, high quality produce. And the lower or the average product that's grown here is not. Um, you know, it's pulled out of the ground. It's not packaged as well as it could be, and it's not tra- transported uh, the way it should be or could be. So by the time the consumer grabs it, uh, buys it, it's perhaps three days old, maybe four days. Right. So you can do the fun stuff, the menu development, the concept planning, and then training, training, yeah. right, and then let the business itself and let them, with, yeah, with the soggy, well, the soggy vegetables. <laughs> well, it depends. Look, uh, there's two ways to that I deal with this, and that's uh, with intellectual property, and that's when I uh, put someone in the kitchen that I've trained. Or it could just be a write the menus, train the staff, um, and try and um, steer them towards produce that's going to work. And that's pretty much it. Uh, I'll, I'll walk away from it and hope that uh, it succeeds. So, Greg, when you try to explain to people what it is that you bring to Middle Eastern cuisine, I mean, how do you characterise it? Well, look, it's... I, I guess I start off with my heritage, but and the f- fact that I was uh, brought up in a new world country with uh, an old cuisine. Um, you know, the family family food was very important. I mean, it's important to everyone, uh, but it's it's really an interpretation. It's no, there's no fusion or um, there's no. Uh, um, playing um, God with uh, 
with the cuisine itself. It's really an interpretation. So I look at the dish and hopefully uh, keep the integrity of the dish. And whether it's Persian, Turkish, um, Syrian, Jordanian, North African, I don't want to play around too much with the dish. So all I'm doing is make it look a little more architectural and add uh, a few more layers to it. I guess there is obviously, you know, you've already expressed your, your desire for great produce to be part of those dishes. Well, yeah, it's it's not uh, – we're not talking foie gras and truffles. It's just good – it's just produce that's um, been grown properly and transported properly. Uh, you know, I do miss the days of ringing um, growers and fishermen. Um, sorry, that was not. <laughs> um, I do miss the uh, opportunity of um, talking to growers and suppliers, uh, fishermen, butchers. Um, here, you can't do that. You know, you, you're you're um, the only connection you really have is with a purchasing officer or department, and that. Really, I mean, that was the other reason why it frustrated me. So, uh, because bef- before you were before you moved to the Middle East, I think it was 2014, you were at Petersham Nurseries in oh, t- 2012. 2012, yeah, was like, yeah. yeah, you're at Petersham Nurseries, right? So, where you're just basically in amongst the produce, absolutely. Well, they had a garden there, so and I, I mean, I had a flower garden, edible flower garden, um, and herb garden and vegetables and so and a lot of the produce obviously was local as well but they brought in some amazing produce from Italy from uh, um, from down south and it was all super seasonal as well so um, that's uh, I mean it's a highlight for any chef and you know chefs are on this planet for possibly just two reasons and that's to 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 cook for others and make other people um, content with what they're eating. And secondly, to have produce that they're proud of. Um, there's nothing worse than a frozen piece of whatever or an old piece of something coming into your kitchen and you're already on the back foot thinking, what you know, what am I going to do with this? So, <laughs> yeah. Um- I mean, so Petersham Nurseries, I think you took it from one Michelin star to two while you No, were no, there. no, no, no. It just retained. No, they retained. had, there was an Italian, it was an Italian restaurant. I changed the cuisine and I think they wrote in the, uh, the Michelin guys wrote that on merit of, uh, of Middle Eastern food and the originality of it, um, we've, we want to, uh, highlight this and keep the uh, retain the star so that was really about uh, Lebanon and it's um, I mean it's I have to say that it is one of the great cuisines of the world but it's it's almost hit a a brick wall in fact the Arab world is cuisine has hit a brick wall and it needs to push further so I guess that's one reason why I'm here and it you know the markets here are a lot larger um, and you know, there's a lot of people ask me, why did you leave Australia? And, um, I, there's no real, uh, there's no answer, no straight answer, except 
I've done all I can and uh, the markets are too small. So hence the, yeah. Hence the move. Yeah, so for people who, who haven't followed your career, you you were at O'Connell's um, in South Melbourne, which I guess is where people really, it, where I, I don't know, so many people went through that kitchen, Middle Eastern food seemed to be really pushed into a new place by uh, through your tenure there. Um, and then you went to Momo and that was another adventure again. It's, but it's so interesting to hear you say that you think Middle Eastern food has hit a brick wall, that it needs to go further, when at the same time you're sort of saying, well, the foundations are there. I'm not really trying to change anything. Uh, I'm just trying to re-present it in a certain way. I mean, is, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, look, it's uh, exactly, yeah, um, that's fine. That's a great way to to look at it. And look, there are, there's a, there are numerous um, chefs that are. I'm not alone on this. There's, there's quite a few chefs out there uh, with Middle Eastern backgrounds, or, in fact, I know a couple of Lebanese people that uh, are very talented in what they do. Um, so, it's uh, a combination of what I'm trying to do and what. They've all they've achieved. I mean, some of these people I know in Lebanon have written some amazing books on uh, contemporary Middle Eastern food, and I admire them a lot. And we're we're good. Uh, I'm good. Uh, have good relationships and friendships with them. So, and also in Australia, I mean, Melbourne in particular was is. Um, uh, I think one of the original places where Middle Eastern food actually took off in a, in the right direction, and they've been, Melburnians have embraced Middle Eastern food, contemporary Middle Eastern, more than um, any other city I know. They just, uh, I think, at one stage, fell in love with it so much that uh, you know every second menu uh, had something uh, connected with the Middle East. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just normal here and it, it's obviously it's so delicious. And, yeah, I guess you had a lot to do with the way that it's um, filtered through our culinary culture. You know, as we're talking, Greg, I just – this vision keeps coming back to me and it's me sitting at Momo in its second iteration in the um, in the hotel uh, and I've got this beautiful bestia in front of me and – it's just like the pleating on the pastry is extraordinary. It's glossy. You can sort of tell just by looking at it, even though it's crisp and shiny, you can tell that it's flaky. I don't know how you can tell the pastry is going to be flaky from the external surface, but somehow you could. And then it's like you open it and the fragrance envelops you. Uh, and then there's just this incredible balance of crisp and soft and spice just just yeah, sweet, yeah, um, dried fruit and cinnamon and um, oh my god, I can hardly talk because my mouth's watering too much. Yeah, <laughs> well, like- yeah, I'm in there as well. I I love that dish and um, it's quite uh, uh, it's actually quite popular around here as well because I I do uh, I've never forgotten um, how that came about and. You know, always try it with different um, uh, stuffings, whether it's duck, pigeon, chicken, 
even uh, vegetarian uh, spinach and um, eggplant. So it's, yeah, it's a very versatile dish and the technique is interesting as well. What is it that you bring to a, a classic dish like a bastia, which, you know, is it, it's part of a lot of people's Middle Eastern heritage? But what's, what's the Greg Maloof spin on it? Um, again, there's layers. Uh, there's layers that... Uh, are quite uh, that that are added to the dish. Uh, if I go, if I went to Morocco or even Tunisia and um, ate uh, tagine, I mean, although they're very different, tagines from Morocco and Tunisia are quite different. But in Morocco, uh, they're a lot sweeter, um, and there's plenty of bones in there as well, um, and. I think I just I toned down, toned down the sweetness, and I also because there's eggs in there as well. They they scramble eggs into it to make the base for the the pie. Um, I actually make a custard, and the custard um, is made with the stock of the uh, pigeon or the or the uh, duck, and. Then when the filling the fillings um, stuffed into the phyllo or um, brick pastry, it's uh, then it's put into quite a hot oven, and then the custard starts to set, and you know it doesn't scramble or overcook. So you've got that lovely moist uh, um, mouthfeel. So and it, it just works with all of the rich meat the sweetness of the dusting of cinnamon and icing sugar and um you know the these certain layers of spices there's also almonds in there that are fried and so yeah there's a lot going on but it just somehow comes together and works beautifully i like it ah <laughs> oh, i can't stand it <laughs> i need it <laughs> <laughs> well i yeah it's um I think that will uh, – I. whilst in, I'm in Australia, I'll be doing some um, events at O'Connell's Hotel. Well, we better just backtrack. So it's, thir- it's 30 years since you started at O'Connell's in South Melbourne and you are <laughs> – I'm so glad you are coming to Australia to celebrate that anniversary. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so you, you're coming uh, – yeah, and just in, in – at the start of August, you'll obviously spend a couple of weeks um, in quarantine, hanging out. Have you, got, have you got plans for quarantine? What will you be doing? Uh, I'll be writing. Um, uh, look, I, I've got a contract for the Grand Prix in Abu Dhabi. So there's 40 dishes um, I've created. So I need to write recipes for them. So that's going to take up most of my time. All right. Luckily, you've got two weeks to do that. And then you're. You'll be doing events at O'Connell's? Yes, uh, late uh, September. Um, I think there's four events or three events at the moment. They might that might go to four. I think one of them's a brunch with uh, around 10 shared dishes and there's uh, uh, two dinners, again, with um, 10 shared dishes. And they're all different. Uh, I think the brunch will run a different menu. Um 
with wines and yeah it's I, I really look forward to it i i actually can't wait i think this will be a highlight uh for me for a long time i really uh there's a lot of um staff that want to come and eat and actually help and uh, there's a lot of guests that i've known over the years that keep saying uh, when are you coming back or we miss O'Connell's or we miss Momo or so it's uh, it's about time I did something um, or gave back to O'Connell's I mean they gave me a lot over 10 years um, well, we'll just uh, have to keep ourselves out of lockdown for that period <laughs> because um, <laughs> we definitely need to experience your food again. Uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be all right. Um, Greg, what is it? I mean, so many people that have worked with you speak with, you know, just with such gratitude and awe about the time that they spent uh, sort of learning from you. What is your approach to teaching and training? Well, it's look if you can remove fear and ego then you're halfway there it's just, it's it's as simple as that and just focus on um i mean that's with most um industries anyway but fear and ego if if that gets in the way you're you're in trouble uh that's they're my thoughts and um, I've also, I've been lucky enough to surround myself by some very talented, um, people and whether they're technicians or creators. Um, and that's another thing that I like to do. And it, it is surround myself with people that are as, t- uh, as talented or if not more talented, uh, than myself. And so that's where the ego is. Like you, you don't have, you, you don't mind if somebody outshines you. Yeah. Look, I, I don't. Uh, maybe years ago when I was a kid, yeah, we all have egos and whatever. But you know, I think that was beaten out of me at an early age. So, um, I uh, now think that there's, there's just no, there's no real place for it. And I know many chefs globally that um, don't subscribe to that at all. They go the other way, fear and ego, which, which does for me doesn't make sense. So, do you think having that attitude has has helped you progress with your own cooking and the way that you think about food? Look, uh, when I think about food, I think about Traveling, uh, travels. I think about family values, friendship values. You know, there's a lot of things going on, and I might be triggered to write a dish if I'm walking through a market and see some uh, lamb's tongue or, or you know, some uh, just a sim- humble eggplant. There's some something might trigger me to, um, uh, cr- uh, well, I guess create something, but. I think chefs in general, if they can create one original dish in their lifetime, they've probably made it. So that's a tough one. <laughs> Have you done that? No, no. I, you know, everything's got uh, – look, I could say that salmon kibbine was a thing that I um, made in 1994 and I – 
I still can't get enough of it. And I think I've got the approval of my mother at the time because she just thought that the things that I was doing were, were a little wacky. And But when she ate that, she just thought, wow, this is... <laughs> This is something else. So that um, wow. that helped a lot. Was that a gateway to further approval? Well, it's just look, it's just one approval. That's all I needed. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, I didn't want to argue about anything else. No. Yeah, <laughs> um, Greg, I'd love to ask you about your health because um, I know I know that you don't have your original heart in your body. Um, <laughs> can you uh, tell the me heart that- of a twenty-eight-year-old? Is that what you've got? Yeah. yeah. Um, tell tell us about that. Well, there's not much to tell. Um, you know, I had a, a checkered history of health issues and just got back up. And, uh, I mean, I was told several times that I shouldn't be cooking. And then I, I think every time I was told that, I uh, went forward and wanted to cook. So... Now the uh, it's it's things are monitored very well. I have actually I had two heart transplants. The first one, um, I I don't know. I, I think I just didn't look after myself all that well. The second one, I thought no, I, I need to deal with this properly. So it was about diet and um, a regime and exercise and. There's, I mean, there is uh, drug therapy, um, immune suppressant therapy that I can't stop. And generally now, you know, I've lost quite a bit of weight now and uh, I try and um, um, be as active as I can, whether I'm walking or, uh, I mean, in the kitchen, I'm I've, uh, I think I've monitored around eight to 10,000 steps or so, which is not too bad. And it's really, uh, and I, it's really, uh, I've controlled what I eat. So, you know, there's no late night binging and drink and, uh, and bowls of noodles and things like that. So I've stopped all that. I actually get up in the morning quite early, have uh, some yogurt and uh, fruits, um, a light lunch and a, just a grill and whatever for dinner. I don't go out a lot here because some, you know, I kind of get disappointed a little bit and it's super expensive. And so I go and buy um, produce and I, I cook at home a lot. So And I can control my diet and, and whatever quite easily here. And actually, when I was in lockdown, that was great because uh, um, I just stopped everything and uh, I just controlled myself. And I think I lost around eight, nine kilo through lockdown. Oh, I think I got them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um <laughs> Is there is there anything about having the heart of somebody else in your body that that goes beyond it just being a, a bit of um, uh, biological machinery that makes your makes your blood flow? Like, is there any feeling of having someone else's heart? No, no. Uh, th- look, there was at the start when I was a lot younger. I was kind of freaked out a little bit, 
Uh, but now, no, I, I don't. Even, I don't think about it. If someone mentions, um, uh, "Do you have any health issues?" I generally say, "No, look, a bit of cholesterol." But if someone's delving into my history, then yeah, I'll, I can say that I, I don't relate to. Uh, I relate to the heart as something that's life-saving and um, has made me uh, probably a better person in that uh, I can continue what I do, uh, continue my life's work and can continue, um, I guess, entertaining in a kitchen. Do you, is it like, how, why does it make you a better person? Well, I think as a kid, you're invincible and you want to do everything and anything. And and at one stage, I um, thought I could. And no, I was just had that ego, egotistical kind of side of me creep up. And, um, you know, it's a potentially destructive. So uh, I slowed down a lot when I was ill and just decided, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go down that path. Um, but it, it's not connected to, uh, there's no emotional uh, connection with the donor, although I did receive a letter from someone um, on my second transplant, and they were convinced that I had their husband's um, heart because they followed my career and knew that I had a transplant at a certain time and their partner um, passed away in, I think, a car accident and um, thought that I was the uh, recipient. And so I freaked. That really did freak me out. It was uh, quite a a shock to read this. It was a handwritten two-page letter. Uh, So I gave it to the hospital, the Alfred, and they checked it out and said, no, it's not it. And I said, well, what shall I do? And they said, don't respond. We'll respond for you. And so that that was that. And that was probably the most emotional. That was the, uh, that triggered a lot of things, I think. Yeah, that is, that is very intense. I mean, it's obviously for the person who was writing that letter. It, yeah. I mean, she'd lost that person. So yeah, but it's, um, yeah, it's, I guess, does that make you part of that person's story or is it, it's all your story? It's um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I can see <laughs> that it would throw up a lot of uh, questions and narrative threads, but um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that uh, I'm just glad that it's possible to do those things and um, that your heart is, yeah, your, your blood is still flowing and a heart is beating in your body. Um, Greg, I really do wonder what you're going to think of Melbourne. We've been through the wars a little bit, as have so many parts of the world, pretty much the whole world. That's all right. Look, I've just come back from Beirut, so nothing's as severe as that. Yeah, Yeah. it's not Beirut. Um, I really would just love to finish with a little bit of a description of the brunch because um, I haven't eaten one of your brunches. What kinds of things could we expect? Uh, well, I was told not to mention any dishes, <laughs> but just no one's listening. Just a little sneaky one. Oh, uh, look, it's um, it's a it's a mixture of old and new. It's a mixture of what I was doing back then in 1991 and what I'm doing now, which you know, there's common threads, but 
the look is very different, and it it has to be. I mean, thirty years has gone by, so um, there is uh, there's some interesting stuff going on with or food uh, dishes. Uh, you know, I've even you know so, such a classic like pavlova's been um, twisted in a way that has. I guess some Arabic flavors to it, and the look of it is very different as well. It it looks like something out of a a, a Ramadan um, tent. So there's a few there's things that um, uh, are current with me, and as I was saying, there's a lot of older dishes, but you will see the the um, and you will see the the uh, salmon kibbeneya, but they'll be presented a little bit differently. Um, what else can I say without revealing much, too much? There's, there's probably a few different ingredients that um, that are intriguing. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's something that I really look forward to. <laughs> Great. I well, do. I do. Yeah. Well, I do as well. Um, and yeah, I'm really, really excited that we'll get to see you in Melbourne before too long. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for chatting today. It's just, I really feel like I've had a little bit of a jaunt around the Middle East with you, uh, which is extremely welcome. Um, as we, I talked to you from my restricted circumstances in Melbourne. Um, but yeah, travel safe. And uh, yeah, we'll see. You, we'll see you here before too long. Yes, look, I, I, uh, I'll be in Australia early next month, having fun in quarantine, and then, um, then I look forward to seeing my family and friends and, and eating out. That's the other thing that I miss so much, eating out in Melbourne. Wow. Wow. Yeah, well, restaurants will be very glad to welcome you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Danny. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. Peace.